0: Hello, Internet. My name is Walter C.A.D.'s FedChuck, and welcome to maybe one of the most special editions of the Final Cut podcast presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. Uh, as we stated on the uh, last episode of the podcast, uh, personally, I am feeling a little burnt out on some of the cinema that we have been watching, uh, that the uh, the the ninety sixth Academy Awards or the twenty twenty four Oscar nominations came out, and there were there was really nothing on there that sparked joy to me that I was like, I absolutely want to watch this. I am going to go out of my way to watch this. Uh, since then, I've kind of perused some things, and maybe I'll watch one or two of the films, but I, I, I didn't want to like put a timeline on when I had to watch them and talk about them on a podcast when I wasn't super enthralled with it. Um, my lovely co-host, on the other hand, Chase Wassenaar, has watched some of those films. Uh, so Chase, welcome to the episode. And is there any one of those movies you've watched in the last couple of weeks uh, that stood out that you want to, you know, maybe sell to me on on that I should watch?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, happy to be here. Always happy to uh, break down uh, some films that we've seen, especially this week, because we're doing something a little bit different, uh, and I'm, I'm very excited to get in. But you asked me about the Oscars films, and I'm going to ask you a, a question here, Walter. A's or P's? Do you want the A's or do you want the P's? Because I've seen four films. I'm going to talk about one pair this week and one pair next episode.
0: Let, let's let do the P's. Let's get the P's out of the way. Okay. Great.
1: Um, past lives is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. Um, what a profound, deeply empathetic look at people, the connections we have to each other, the relationships and kind of missed connections that are inherent to our busy lives, the way that we can reconnect back to each other and what that looks like. Um, the idea of, um, you know, in a past life or in a future life, would things have been different for us if things had broken a certain way um but doing so in all moments from a place of sincerity and empathy. This is not a film in which, like, oh, there's like a bad guy, like there's a relationship that has been formed, and we're supposed to be rooting for it to break up, so these two can get back together um two incredible performances from Greta Lee. And uh, T O U um, in this uh, Korean film uh, that uh, deserves all of the love and all of the praise for everything it's done. Um, there, yeah, it's there's no villains in this. There's just the circumstances that life has that bring us together and apart in any number of different ways. And it's beautiful. It's just a it's just a beautiful film, and I'm so glad I took the time to watch it. Um, it, it stuck with me for sure.
0: Would I be right to say that this is kind of like a like a slice of life film, or kind of like I, I don't want to say coming of age because that does feel like very kind of preteen, but that kind of genre where it is just it is just about like moments in time.
1: I would definitely not say coming of age because this covers like multiple different points. There's like them when they're young as kids. Um, there's them when they're both in college age, like you know, quite a few years have passed, and then another twelve years pass and they're meeting up again as adults. Um, Slice of Life I, I struggle with as a genre term because it tries to lump together the entirety of the human experience that isn't like a big action set piece, right? Um I all I could say is like if you have a fondness for uh romance and human connection, right? um you know this is a film that that is entirely focused on um what brings people together what uh takes people apart and finding peace in that um being able to to reconcile with the idea that um sometimes things don't work out the way we planned but that doesn't mean it was wrong or that it didn't matter it just means that life has its own twists and turns that we're all constantly trying to navigate as best we can. Um, and like I said, just a deeply beautiful film. So hopefully that answers your question. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I cannot recommend that one more highly. I think of the four films that I will eventually talk about from the Oscars, this is the one that has stuck with me the hardest and the longest.
0: It, it does sound quite beautiful and it, it, it sounds sort of... Sort of what I've come to expect um, from some of these Eastern, you know, Asian, I I hate lumping it together, but sort of these Eastern Hemisphere directors, um, you know, again, reminding me of like, you know, Drive My Car was a very, you know, it it was a look at life um, that was just very, very fascinating, very interesting to me. I I will say one of the things that I have kind of like kind of circled back to as I've looked at the Oscar has been um, Perfect Days seems to keep cropping cropping back up of something that hopefully I will get to at some point, you know, in the next few months. Uh, yes. With that being said, Chase, uh, I already know what the other P movie is and that's why I want to get it out of the fucking way. Talk to me about Poor Things.
1: Just real quick though, because I, I, I can't get over this. Past Lives, that's a directorial debut. Fucking insane that she's that good at this this early on. Anyway, Poor Things is a absolute delight. Um, it is one of the craziest batshit films I've ever seen in my life. Um, you, you don't know where it's going. I promise you, whatever your expectations are going in, it is not possible to capture the insanity in several of these moments, the twists and turns that come in. There are multiple moments throughout this film in which I just could not believe the thing that I was watching. Um, and I say that uh, in complete delight. Uh, Willem Dafoe is, is of course, perfect in, in his role. Uh, Emma Stone deserves all of the love that she's getting for Best Actress um, because the role that she has to play and the nuances within are absolutely fascinating, right? It is so easy for a concept like this to go very wrong, right? The idea of a child's brain putting into a, a grown woman's body as she tries to navigate Uh, polite society and engage with the world and discover these things about herself could very easily go to a lot of dark or gross places. Um, And it doesn't because the Emma Stone is able to carry it so much from pure charisma and the film very naturally plays out uh, what is an ultimately insane premise from a place that is uh, easy to connect to and be entranced by. Um, It is, absolutely insane um and i i keep coming back to that because i i i have never seen a film like it before i will never see a film like it again uh there is nothing that is that that can um be compared to in a way that i feel would be um a fair comparison it is one of a kind uh and i believe it's absolutely worth your time if you're willing to go on a fucking batshit
0: adventure I'm not. I've I've read enough uh, synopsises and and plot descriptions of it. Um, no, no, thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I know a lot of people that have seen it do enjoy it. Um, but there's nothing about that plot that I want to watch. And I know Tar was a great fucking podcast episode.
1: No, I I cannot stress enough. Tar is for a lot of things that I love. Uh it is exactly what you could anticipate from the tin just executed very well in my opinion, not so much in yours, which is fair enough there this is not cannot possibly be compared uh, because this is so outside of the norm and the standard that we expect from films that get this kind of attention um it's it is in no way um pretentious because it has no interest there's a like it 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 engages in the grotesque and the um the just profoundly absurd in a way that is entirely in in an entire different world than a film like tar they have they could not have less in common
0: Uh, according to uh, Angelica Jade Bastion of Vulture, it's a dark comedy for people who carry around an NPR tote bag.
1: I, I only, like, I get the comparison you're trying to make there, but I believe that is more in reference to the cleverness through which certain pieces are laid out. It has it is, it is appealing to a very different aspect of the personalities of those people. I cannot stress enough, there is nothing in common between those two films. Beyond the fact that uh, it's, uh, I guess, um, written to reward those who are uh, putting in that extra bit of uh, attention to detail and have enough background knowledge of the subject being brought up to engage with it that much more deeply. But beyond that, from tone to style to structure, um,
0: could not be further apart. Entirely fair. I'm not going to watch it. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And maybe you, listener at home, if that sounds like, you know, up your alley, by all means, please go watch it and, and let us know your thoughts I just know there's not enough money on the planet to make me watch that film.
1: I I am so mad at whatever uh synopsis you read because they clearly uh made a lot of mistakes that I would like to correct on the record, but I understand your decision is made, that's fine. Um like I said of the two films I've talked about here, I poor things um, is the one that connected to me emotionally the most. Or Sorry, Past Lives was the one that emotionally connected me the most. Poor Things is just fucking absurd in all the best ways. Uh, and yeah, if you do see it, let me know if you come down on the side of uh, that was delightful in all the weirdest ways or what the fuck did I just watch, Chase? How dare you put me through this? Because that, I think, is a lot more likely as a response to this film than anything in the tar or traditional drama comparison. And, I, and, and you know what? If that's the take you get out of it, like, what the fuck was that? Why did I spend my time on it? Honestly, fair.
0: <laughs> it's, it's a lot. But it is
1: uh, one of a kind, that's for sure.
0: Well, speaking of one of a kind, uh, we we now get to the, the topic of today's podcast. Uh, Chase and I decided we were each going to pick a film... That the other person hadn't seen, we asked, "Have you seen this film?" And we said yes or no. And if we said no, perfect. We're going to watch this film for the podcast, and we're going to talk about it. Um, I, I we we're kind of kind of broad on like what we were choosing, and I I said at the end of the last episode, I was going to have Chase watch 1996's The Rock, and Chase, in the last two weeks, have you watched? 1996's The Rock.
1: Uh, you could have asked, in the last uh, four hours, have I seen The Rock? And the answer would be yes. Um, I, I'm very glad that you picked this one. And not just because, um, having talked to a few different friends and even my family about it, my mom's apparently a huge The Rock fan, which, uh, who saw that coming? Um, but, I mean, Sean Connery is fantastic. Uh, Nicholas Cage is always a ton of fun. Uh, Michael Bay is never boring, at the very least. Uh, so this was not a hard sell to get me to, uh, to co-sign on, that's for sure.
0: Yes. I I also brought this up to my dad because I had mentioned to him, you know, the, the premise of this, you and I had been talking, you had never seen Transporter, you had never seen The Departed or The Town and like all these different films. And my dad's like, oh, those are all great choices. What did you end up picking? And I said, The Rock. And he busted out laughing and he's like, that, that's a good choice. That's a really good choice. And then him and I went on for like another 20 minutes of being like, well, what other night, like mid-90s, early 2000s action movies do I think Chase hasn't seen? And I'm pretty sure I can go through like I a ton of them. And I bet there's a ton that you haven't seen. But, but we settled with The Rock. And I'm really glad I chose The Rock versus something like The Town or The Departed um, because it's been a long time since I watched The Rock. And I forgot... How much I fucking love this film. And I'm going to come right out and say it right at the beginning here. To me, this is a 10 out of 10 film. And there is nothing that Chase can say that is going to shake that belief, right? That is how entrenched in my brain this movie is and how entrenched it is in that I love this film. Uh, So that's not what Chase is even going to attempt to do. We are not trying to convince the other person they are wrong. Uh, we are just going to we are just watching a film the other person greatly enjoys and having you know a conversation about it uh, like we we normally do. So Chase, with that being said, what were your expectations going into The Rock?
1: So you know it's one of those things, right? Uh, obviously, I am very familiar with the '90s action movie tropes, right? There is a it, it as a genre. Um, there are a lot of films during that era that all carry, you know, this very bombastic style to it, the catchy one-liners, um, you know, some some cheese and how they approach uh, certain topics and whatnot, but always in the name of fun, right? Um, and so I, I hadn't seen this one in particular, and in fact, there are a lot of them I have not seen, but I knew we were in for that kind of a film, right? Um, As someone who really loved The Hunt for Red October and has a great deal of respect for Sean Connery and just about everything that he does, um, I was very excited to see him uh, put in some work on this. Uh, Nicolas Cage is a delight, just one of the most uniquely weird people that has ever existed in in Hollywood. Um, I think we talked a lot about our our feelings on Nick Cage and the unbearable weight of massive talent, so go listen to that episode if you haven't yet. Um, But... Uh, needless to say, uh, I do find the guy captivating to watch. Um, and, you know, Michael Bay, a lot of things you could say about Michael Bay. Uh, I have said many in the past uh, and not in a necessarily a positive, um, but uh, he is bombastic. He is over the top. And with the kind of talent that was here, I knew we were going to be in for a fun time. Was it going to be a masterpiece? That was what I had to find out. But I knew I was going to have fun. And that, you know, for uh, honestly, if you're going to spend two hours knowing you're having a fun time, that could be enough. Um, But I'm excited to get into it more and see where you and I align and and perhaps where my many pages of notes that I took on my phone throughout this film uh, may, uh, may dissent, I suppose. Uh, but all in good fun. This is not a film that takes itself seriously enough. I'm going to get into the kind of in-depth thematic analysis that I just went in for poor things or past lives. So let's just have fun with it, man.
0: Yeah, this is a this is a bloody good action movie, right? That's mm-hmm. what it comes down to. Is this is an action movie, and there is depth to it, right? There is some real, um, real analysis, right? Real critique of aspects of the United States government, of the United States military, of, you know, masculinity in the, in the, you know, in the mid nineties, right? This is a film that comes from 1996, right? There, it, it's a different era. We're talking almost 20 years ago. Um, So there are some things that like are in terms of our modern sensibilities, like you kind of cringe at it. You go like, all right, like that's not great, um, which I'm sure we'll get to in a few minutes. Um, But this is the quintessential, what was on cable television, what was on TNT, TBS, you know, at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. Um, And that's probably how I watched this film, right? It was probably randomly on one of these cable channels back, you know, in 2003, 2004, when I'm in like middle school, early high school, that we stumbled across, we all know Sean Connery, we know Nick Cage from, you know, at that time, Ghost Rider, National Treasures, you get a little later, all these kinds of things. And uh, and it does follow the Hunt for Red October script pretty well, actually, that you bring it up of the, you know, the, the scientist, right? The smart guy that's not really an action hero pairing up with, you know, an older, grizzled, you know, military guy in Hunt for Red October it is this submarine command you know, Soviet submarine commander, mm-hmm. and Alec Baldwin's character is just this like CIA analyst or NSA analyst, I forget exactly which department Um, But then that's like that entire Tom Clancy arc with clear and present danger and, um, you know, Jack Ryan, right? The Jack Ryan arc. Uh, And then The Rock follows a very similar thing here, placing Nicolas Cage as FBI Special Agent Stanley Goodspeed, who is a bio biochemical scientist, right? That's what he's about. (laughs)
1: Which has to be the first thing for people to... You have to accept that Nick Cage is a bioweapons chemical specialist. Um, Fascinating casting in that regard. Would not change a thing, but it is is hard to... uh, If you were to ask me, which actor from the 90s would you cast as the biochemical weapons specialist? I think I'd go down a bit before I ran into Nick Cage, but... Right. Ooh, but I then had... they
0: justify the choice, right? They justify the choice immediately by they have this scene where they are dealing with uh, this this dirty bomb, essentially, in the FBI weapons lab. They, they you know, are, are disarming it, all of these things. And then it cuts to a scene of Nick Cage like in a robe in his apartment playing guitar and his girlfriend comes. So I was like, how was your day? He's like, you won't ever believe what happened to me. And he has this like, you know, two minute monologue about how he like came home early uh, to, to play guitar and drink some uh, wine and and unwind because there's all these terrible people in the world. And he had to deal with this Bob and he thinks it's like an act of moral negligence to bring a child into the world. And then his girlfriend is like, I'm pregnant. And he's like, Oh, and she's like, did you really mean that? And he's like, well, I did a few minutes ago. I meant it at changed. the time.
1: Yeah. Very funny. A lot's happened since then is the exact way he phrased
0: it. It's 30 seconds. It's like in literally 30 seconds, right? 30 like 30 seconds. seconds, everything is now changed because he's going to be a father. It's, and immediately in that moment, you go, right, it doesn't matter that he's a, a biochemical weapons expert. It's like, no, 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 he's Nicolas Cage. Like they are just putting Nicolas Cage and saying, "Trust us, he's this, he's that kind of guy." But really, we just needed Nicolas Cage because he's the only guy on the planet that can make that scene work.
1: Well, Walter, I mean, the world is being FedExed to hell in a handcart.
0: So, I mean, (laughs) yeah,
1: I mean, what else is supposed to say?
0: (laughs) The Uh, first of. Many, many quotes from this film that this is a this is an infinitely quotable film, and I'm sure Chase and I will will get to a bunch more. Um, and then obviously the, the Sean Connery of it all is that he is a, a former uh, SAS uh, officer major that apparently, as you get further into the plot, had stole all of J. Edgar Hoover's files of dirt. Right. Because because we all know Jagger Hoover was a piece of shit and much like Nixon, like kept dirt on literally everyone. So Sean Connery's character, uh, John John Mason steals these files and then gets put into Alcatraz and like any hole that the FBI can stick him in to disappear because he refuses to give them back the files.
1: It's so, I mean, in that alone, there are so many inherent problems, right? Why are the British trying to steal these files from the Americans during a time at which we are presumably allies? um, And there's nothing really that the British intelligence could do with that information in theory. Is it self-wild? So the British government never had a problem with the fact that one of their agents didn't come back? Just like, sure, we're cool with the Americans having him in perpetuity, no fair trial. That seems reasonable and cool um but also like j edgar hoover's all of his stuff and from everything from who killed jfk to the roswell landing which is confirmed in this film in universe to be a thing that definitely a hundred percent happened um all on one microfilm Quite the microfilm that he was able to find really feels like j edgar hoover would have put those things in some different places Um, But all of this, like, you have to call him in, Walter, because no one knows what Alcatraz looks like nowadays. I mean, sure, it was three decades in-universe since he was down there, but nothing has changed since. But also, none of the blueprints that were available were updated to what happened three decades ago. So there's this just massive window of time in which Changes were happening all the time without being marked down on a blueprint, but also immediately stopped changing and never changed again. Um, so he's the perfect guy for the job. Um, I mean, look, I'm, I'm down for any contrivance that gets Sean Connery into the plot, but the levels of suspension of disbelief somehow harder to get to than Nicolas Cage as a chemical weapon specialist.
0: Well, and and Chase, listen, if you can get past both of those things, right, Mm -hmm. we're actually like 25 minutes into the film when we meet Nicolas Cage, right? Mm -hmm. The the actual plot starts with Ed Harris, and Ed Harris is is a United States Marine General, and we open with him placing his Medal of Honor on his dead wife's grave and being like, I've tried to, like, live within the system, but there's something I have to do. And um, he leads a battalion of of basically uh, Marines that have now defected, special forces that have defected, to stealing something called VX gas, um, mm-hmm. which makes anthrax look like bubble gum or something. I forget what the exact phrasing is that, uh, yeah. that Nicholas Cage uses. Uh, takes them, takes those rockets that the U.S. has just, like in a bunker that's just, like, behind one of those comically large bank vaults, essentially. Um, They drop one of the vials, which shows one of his men dying in this, like, gruesome fashion, right? Think, like, Raiders of the Lost Ark when he opens up, the the Nazi opens up the Covenant and looks into it. That's kind of what they're alluding to. They then take those rockets to Alcatraz. Ed Harris sends home... The kids that are there, there's, like, a field trip there, and he, like, tells the group of kids, go tell your teacher you need to take the boat home, and then holds 80 Americans inside of a national park hostage. Which, for the to, record, what, what, what
1: tour in Alcatraz includes locking the doors so that people could experience what it was like to be
0: in the cell? Oh, that's there's very nice No, to lock no that, that actually, like, happened in the 90s.
1: I feel like that was a mistake. I don't think that ever should have been allowed to happen. There's no, like, you could put them in the cell without locking the door. Like, there's no need to close that door for them to have that experience. Weird tour angle. Just, if it was true in the 90s, I'm mad at the people running the tour more than the film. But a weird choice to actually close the cell doors doesn't seem like a thing we would do today. For, I don't know, maybe
0: at least some of the reasons mentioned in this film. But, But again, Chase, right? The, 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 like, chemical weapons, that's not the unbelievable stuff. The military defecting, that's not the... The reason for his defection is that he apparently led, like, a special forces, like, dark unit, right, that, like, nobody knows about. And he's lost, like, 86, 83 men. And because these were all, like, dark, you know, CIA missions, essentially... Uh, their families didn't get any benefits. They didn't get military funerals or anything. So now he wants them to utilize a bank account that apparently the CIA has for illegal arms sales uh, yes. to, like, pay out, uh, make payouts to these families that their, their you know, like, sons and daughters and husbands and, you know, whatever, went overseas, died, and then, like, never got buried. Um, which that would which for happen. accuracy. Never. I will
1: I mean, for accuracy, I will say very realistic that the FBI didn't tell the Pentagon (laughs) that they had that slush fund of of money that was for uh, illegal uh, arms sales. Like that, that is a thing the FBI regularly just decides not to loop in the government on their shit. Um, So that I 100% uh, had no problem believing. It was very funny at one point, like he mentions that they were doing like this like mission in uh, like south of China. And like one of the guys was like, we never admit that we went to South China. And he, and he like uh, uh, Hummel goes on this rant about like, you don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, well, he, I mean, he does. He he didn't say that we didn't go. He said we didn't admit to going. So I don't know why he's being like torn into for 45 seconds on just being naive when he very clearly knows what's being referenced. But hey, we got to yell at the 30 year old for being young and naive. So I guess it's fine. Um it's just also, it's,
0: he's a, he's the president's chief of staff and he looks like he walked off the set of West Wing. Absolutely.
1: Um, I it's just it's it's one of those things where if you accept the the premise of this film at face value, which I am choosing to do um because it's more fun that way, there is no villain in this story greater than the United States of America. Because even in 1996 100 million isn't that much money, right? The US government can easily pay off that 100 million. And if you were to say, just do the 83 million, give 1 million to each of the families of those recon Marines who died in the covert operations, then the terrorists have lost all negotiating power, right? Like the 17 million that they can distribute however they want isn't really a leg to stand on. And if you, like if we're going to spend so much time talking about what a good man, what an honorable man Hummel is, if you don't think that that counteroffer would be accepted immediately, uh, like, of course, that's that's the guy that we have set him up to be. And sure, that would get him in trouble with his mercenaries, who he is very naive uh, in trying to to bring around to the cause and think they're not going to mind not getting their million-dollar paychecks. But, like, the U.S., like, this is... One of those times where we don't negotiate with terrorists is an absurd statement. Just give the families the money that you owe them, and it's done. It's over. Film complete. Uh, the U.S. is the is the number one bad guy. Um, though I will also say, as we're going to talk about how good good a man Hummel uh, is, how how honorable and whatnot, uh, for a guy that like will never stoop to killing. There is no way that that initial surge to get those gas-loaded rockets didn't lead to at least several deaths. Because they trank darted some people who were very high up and fell from a great height. And at least one we can visibly see basically break his neck.
0: Now, now, so the idea now, that now, that, now, that now,
1: was Chase. not lethal is insane.
0: Now, 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 Chase. Batman doesn't kill. And I, that's what this is. this is. This is the Batman school of... I don't kill people. I just put them in the hospital for six months.
1: But then he has his men like when the uh, eventual like siege into Alcatraz happens with our special forces crew that's been uh, assigned to this. Right. They trip the the like seismic uh, scanner that lets them know that they're in the room. And they don't use the tranquilizer guns that we know they have. That's live ammo, and Hummel's perfectly comfortable with that. He he looks a little bit sad that it was used, but, like, they could have been equipped under his command to have non-lethal rounds to deal with the invasion threat, and he purposely gives them weapons that are going to kill people. So I don't want to hear it. That guy is totally cool with killing people. It happens multiple times. I, I just... It's such a weird, like the film goes so far out of its way to constantly try to paint him as this like moral beacon within this, like, like things just got out of hand. And it's like, no, there are numerous ways this could have gone that would have been a much more reasonable way to approach this if he was a good dude. We don't need to keep doing this film. We really don't.
0: Well, but, (laughs) but that's like, that's the entire point of that scene where he, he takes his medal of honor and puts it on his wife's grave is like, he says like, I've tried right i've tried to make them listen i've tried to do everything within the system you know using my power right me being a general and if they're not going to listen to me like this like the only other thing i know how to do is special forces shit
1: um sure. and, and
0: i agree with you he didn't have to give them live ammo they didn't have to have real guns um but then it wouldn't be an action movie right like at, at some point um they they do an excellent job of portraying the the actual mercenary part of the groups captain fry and captain darrow uh as they're they're bloodthirsty they're actual mercenaries and and like sure. the entirety anytime they're on screen there's like a glint in their eye right there is a glint where you go if there's a, if there's no villains in this movie it's the united states government i would argue these two are actually the villains right they are not here and, and uh, Hummel has not worked with them before. He's like, oh, your reputation precedes you. But these are not like part of his divisions that have lost comrades, right? These are other soldiers that came in for a payday. And, and much later on in the film, again, you have that moment where Hummel, they, they give up. They're not going to get the money. Hummel decides, fine, fuck it. You guys get out of here. I'll, I'll fall on my sword here. And Darrow's like, I want my fucking money. Right? Sure. Um,
1: Man, so if they, only someone hadn't empowered those guys by offering them a bunch of money to do a bunch of crime shit. I, yeah, if, you're how, right, the U.S. How government. Could Hummel, how could Hummel have possibly seen the most obvious consequence of his action coming? But no, he's a great, honorable general. No no criticisms. Which, again, again let's just be clear here from a historic perspective. Uh, the idea of the most honorable and best uh, commander in the Vietnam War is an oxymoron when it comes to the US. That's just not a thing that existed. So it's, it's just like, I don't mind that he is like naive and subverted from his men or whatever, but the film like keeps accentuating that he is a man of honor and he would never kill. And he has absolutely signed on to things that have inevitably led to death And there was no way his plan could work without people getting killed. So I don't know why the film felt the need to keep circling back to it after that moment had happened, right? Like, that's the moment that we should see all these, like, men in the FBI room being like, oh, Humble's not the man we thought he was. He's willing to do this, and we have to treat him like he's this danger, whatever. And then when he steers the bomb away, we have this moment of like, oh, he is at least trying to be that guy it's a subversion of expectations because we've acknowledged that he's fallen to this point and realizes the error of his ways it, i it, it's a, it's a small thing it's a small thing but it would make the arc make more sense logically within the story that this film tells
0: that that is that is reasonable and i do think this is one of those it's a byproduct of the times right It it's it is 96 and i don't think that there is sort of this um this this valor fatigue right i, I think that there probably is you know this is this is supposed this is a blockbuster film right this is not a an indie film an independent film like this is this is supposed to be like a mega blockbuster film this is michael bay coming off of his his premiere of bad boys this is his second feature film Um, This is, you know, probably, if I remember correctly, I believe this came out like a summer blockbuster. So they're not going to go the full, you know, the full trip of there are there are criticisms of the U.S. military. They aren't going to say, you know, hey, we did all these violent things, terrible things in Vietnam. Um, You know, they're talking about, uh, you know, Desert Storm. But, like, not in this fatigue that I think nowadays when we talk about wars in Iraq, we, I don't want to say roll our eyes at, but we go, like, the U.S. invaded Iraq for, you know, terrible, you know, for for lies, right? For the wrong things, and we stood there way too long. Um, So I do think, like, that part of it is kind of a, a byproduct of it's still 96, and they don't want to completely condemn a general right? Someone that they've paid, that they've made out to be a war hero, uh, because in 1996, they still thought Henry Kissinger was a good person. Sure, but
1: even within the context of this story, you could have done, like, ignore the Vietnam stuff. He's a man of honor. Oh, all of our men are dead. He's not using non-lethal weapons anymore. Something's changed in Hummel. He must be desperate to have been drawn to this, right? Like, that's it. That's all you need to do. Instead of continuing to hammer the same talking points about how honorable the guy is after he has already moved well past the point of honor, um, even within just the events of the film as they're happening. But of course, this is a film that talks about, you know, Sean Connery, like going to his daughter and being like, I just want you to know I'm not an evil person after all of the destruction that was left in his wake (laughs) in that car chase that he directly caused. Numerous people are dead, right? There's no way that was a non-casualty-filled car chase. Like, that man has killed several innocent people, at least so many explosions from cars that theoretically should not explode just from contact, but it's Michael Bay, so fuck it. I mean, we knew that was going to happen. But, like... We are meant to agree with the film that Sean Connery is not a bad dude, despite all of that collateral damage. So we're grading on a scale. There's a curve in this film, regardless of what you're coming from.
0: Yeah, at this point, the only thing we really know about Connery's character is that he was a a felon, right? He's a prisoner. They brought him out, that he's been in a hole, you know, some black site. And that, um, he needs a shave and a haircut, right? We don't know what his crime is, right, and they are very cagey, and they don't say, "Oh, he's a serial killer, he's a murderer he's he's anything. We don't find out what his crime is until after um you know after this car chase scene, so we are going, well, this man is trying to escape, and he thinks he's wrongfully convicted and and we get that exposition from. Um, from Nicholas Cage's character mentioning uh, as like Archimedes like these three um these three philosophy you know government philosophy people and he goes oh well you know what they all have in common they were all wrongfully imprisoned <laughs> and, or his his reference to dance Nelson Mandela you want me to run for president like so the movie is is telling you is giving you these hints this man is wrongfully imprisoned uh so you kind of... Forgive him for the car chase because, yes, it's Michael Bay and you need to have a gratuitous car chase, explosions, all this great stuff. But you are being conditioned to this is not a criminal, right? This is not a felon. This is not a bad person.
1: Please ignore that if there was anyone in the real world who caused that amount of damage in a car chase, regardless of whether the cops were right or wrong to pursue him, would absolutely be a bad guy. It's fine because it's Sean Connery and he gets to come back after being uh, brought in peacefully by Nick Cage, who for whatever reason decides to be kind in, in how he presents uh, uh, the Sean Connery's character to uh, his daughter. Um, and Sean Connery gets to give the the one-liner, looks like you're between a rock and a hard case, which 10 out of 10. Brilliant. Yeah. best oh, One yeah. of the best lines of the film. So Ugh. I I guess it was worth it. But it's it like, you know, with a film like this, right, I, I do not believe that acknowledging the asterisk takes away from the ultimate product. But it is very funny when you take into consideration the levels of suspension of disbelief that you have to take. Um, and that we are all happy to do because it's a fun time. And that's all that really matters at the end of the day.
0: If if you can watch a Star Wars film and accept that a stormtrooper that is a trained like military combatant, right? Like a trained fucking soldier can't hit the broadside of a barn. You can you can gloss over all of the fucking shit in here, right? Like, and this movie was, again, 1996. Like 1996 is this film. There's a lot of stuff. You can just kind of be like, okay, yeah, 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 sure. Whatever. Um, you know, like that, the guidance chips for these rockets to do to take out the guidance chips on the rockets, you have to take the V the VX gas out of the rocket casing to get to the guidance chip. That's not where that would be. No, absolutely not. But
1: (laughs) I mean, but of course it we have to have him. My, My favorite part of that is is towards the very end of the film. Where he gets to the last one and he decides to take one of the orbs of gas in his pocket. Despite the fact that, one, it has been <laughs> repeatedly accentuated throughout the entirety of the film. How fragile this is. And he gets, like, suplexed through a wall, like, multiple times with this in his pocket. It really feels like if the thing worked the way it said it did, that it would
0: come up. I, but and, we, and and then what does he do?
1: Well, of course he shoves it in a guy's uh, mouth and... Uh, there's a uh, uh oh my god, what was the the one-liner uh he had there? Um, ah, man, I didn't, I maybe I didn't write that one down. Um, there, I have the Euro, you're, you're the Rocket Man when he launches a guy. Oh, the rocket, rocket Man one is
0: amazing. But the, uh, the Rocket Man one is incredible. Um, but yeah, oh I don't,
1: god. I don't, I don't have that. I don't have the one he when he shoved the one in his mouth. Somehow I missed that one. Um. Though I did appreciate in that same sequence where uh, Nick is like, do you know how this shit works? And the guy responds, do you know how this shit works? And he starts like playing around with his knife. And it's like, well, clearly you don't know how it works. Because if you did, you would not think that a knife is a sufficient answer to the problem that has been displayed to you. There's yeah. no, no fucking way. Like, come on. Oh. Oh, that's great. Um, was this the first film that did that? They're gonna bomber ass back to the Stone Age because that's one I've heard as a phrase for a long time in the lexicon, and I don't know if it came from here or if it's just being referenced here. Um, but I did I, mark I, that one down as a. I, as a I think well.
0: it's. I think it's just being referenced here because I know I've. I've heard that parlance in other places Uh, i did find the quote you were looking for uh the the guy is is like choking him and says i'm gonna choke my million bucks out of you you're gonna die and stanley goodspeed puts the capsule into his mouth and says eat that you fuck
1: there it is (laughs) of course he does of course he does um god there are so many good my i think my favorite were like the one-offs that weren't like clearly weren't meant to be iconic but are just like like truly human moments for a director in Michael Bay that is not typically known for those, like the like the terrorist guy who at one point when the attack like starts coming in is like fuck man I knew this would happen like wild thing to say you're you were a terrorist you were a mercenary guy you were not allowed to run away saying fuck man I knew this would happen yeah you should have a hundred percent that's the thing you're doing that's the job what are you talking about like it's so good oh man uh, the, the tour guide has another good one as well like oh god this is a terrible tour it's like I really think you should know the point that you're locked in from people with guns So <laughs> this isn't about the tour it just seems like perhaps you should be able to pick up on that one
0: park, uh, park rangers aren't allowed to carry guns shit I have a gun if I knew this was gonna happen I would've brought it <laughs> Yes,
1: because the answer, of course, when a, like, military black ops, like, comes through, if only the civilian had had a singular gun, all those military folks wouldn't have known what, like, the good guy with a gun myth is something we hear a lot in society nowadays, but it has never been more, like, beautifully juxtaposed. Than this one woman being like, if I had my gun, I could have solved all of this. As the paramilitary walks by, like incredible. Just humans are great, man. We're so good at uh, yeah. Making my, proper my, evaluations. My Glock,
0: my Glock is gonna deal with these M16s. But I mean, hey, listen. Uh, you know, Mason deals with a guy with a bottle of kerosene and some waterproof matches. So I don't oh. know who fucking knows.
1: Um, yeah. Sorry, sh- <laughs> shout out to Doctor. Cox, he really took a a weird turn before he became a, the doctor we know and love on. Yeah, John
0: John John C McGinley, if I remember correctly, was in quite a few of these kind of like mid nineties, early two thousands, like action movies, cop movies. Like, I I guess I'll pull up his IMDb since it's it's literally right here. But I remember him. He sh- he's in Platoon, right? He's yeah. in Seven. Like, he's in a he's in Point Break. Right. He's in a bunch of these things where you're like, you don't think about it because you're like, oh, he's Dr. Cox. But then like, oh, yeah, actually, he's in like a shit. He was in fucking burn notice. Like, yeah, there's I a lot th- of stuff. I think about
1: office space, really. That's like the when he first came into yep. my awareness. And when you compare that to this, it's just like, man, Dr. Cox is really on one back in the day. Uh, but that's there are a few of those where it's like, oh, this person, right? Like the uh Nicholas Cage Godspeed is his name, because of course it is, yeah. um, or Good excuse me yeah goodspeed um Vanessa Marcel, and it's like, oh, she was the lead in Las Vegas, right, I remember that show, happy to see you here, Vanessa Marcel. I don't know if i i I don't know how I could have possibly expected it, but I'm not mad at it um god there's some there's just some fun fun stuff. Sprinkled in here, but
0: um, well. So, yeah. so that being said, Chase, I do have some like. So, so, we've kind of gone through the plot, and we've kind of bounced all over here the place. So, I, I do want to focus on a couple of things. Um, mm-hmm. for me, the way I pitched this to you is, I said that this is the greatest Nicolas Cage movie ever. This is the best Nicolas Cage film ever. And the joke between me and my brother is that yes, it's the greatest Nicolas Cage movie ever. Because it's not actually a Nicolas Cage film. It's a Sean Connery film. And I would like to pose that question to you. Is this a Nicolas Cage film, or is this a Sean Connery film? So, it's a
1: very interesting question. Um, I mean, when, I will say this, when Sean Connery comes on screen, it becomes his film. Because it is impossible for a man with the sheer volume of charisma that Sean Connery has to not steal every scene that he's in, right? Um, he is such a, a just, just the aura of this man every time he is on screen. I could watch Sean Connery do Sean Connery things for forever, really. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think he certainly wins a lot of scenes there. But does Sean Connery have a scene... In which uh, he's having sex with his girlfriend, and his girlfriend's like, "Do you like my pigtails?" And Nick Cage responds, "I do, naughty, 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 naughty." <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think he does. So, I think it has to be Nick Cage's film. I think that's the rules. That's the rules.
0: Um, the the that, correct answer to that question is yes. It's both. <laughs> it it yeah. is. It is both their film in a way that. Uh, unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is not just... It's not just Nicolas Cage's film. It's Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal's film, right? It's its both. It has to be both of their films. But, um, but and you how, write, in
1: the na- how in the name of Zeus's butthole could you say anything else, Walter? That's the real question.
0: Listen, we'll get to the fucking favorite quotes here in a second. But <laughs> the the reality of this is, is you are correct. It is very hard to put anyone... On screen with Sean Connery and Sean Connery not to swallow them alive, right? Not to just completely dominate everything. It is something that if you watch The Hunt for Red uh, Red October, that does happen. Whereas you watch the film, you are way more focused on... Uh, On Sean Connery than you are Alec Baldwin like and it works right that's the point it is supposed to be Sean Connery's film and Alec Baldwin is the the supporting actor and here it's two co-leads they are both pushing this film forward um and I'd even say Ed Harris is, is you know is pretty close up there Right. He is pretty high up there when it comes to what he brings to the film and his importance. Right. We talk about, oh, yeah, you know, there's there's John C. McGinley. There is William Forsythe. There's Vanessa Marcel. There's all these kind of bit players you could pick. 60 high school students instead and have them play all the other roles and these three would carry the entire film when they are on screen you are captivated by them and the way they bounce off of each other is incredibly believable um you know i like i said we're gonna get to favorite favorite lines but we have this moment where hummel and um and mason are going back and forth and we do have this moment where someone finally calls out Hummel where they're talking about, you know, what's happening and Hummel is like, hey, do you know who I am? And Mason's like, yeah, you were big in Vietnam. I I saw the highlights on television uh, and he's like, well, then you have you probably have no idea what it means to lead some of the finest men on God's green earth and Mason goes I don't see how you cherish the memory of the dead by killing another million and this is not combat. It's an act of lunacy general. Personally, I think you're a fucking idiot. To which Hummel then responds with a Thomas Jefferson quote and Mason responds with Oscar Wilde gets hit in the head and says thank you for making my point like that is fucking brilliant yeah I could watch them
1: acting. go back and forth with different quotes for another hour that could have been you could make an entire film that's just Sean Connery and Ed Harris quoting various philosophers to try to prove their point in one-liners for, and I would watch that film and I'd have a great time
0: it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful scene Put, um, and Oscar them, Wilde's a
1: 100 percent right on uh, patriotism,
0: by the way. put, put uh, them in that boat scene from Triangle of Sadness. time <laughs> <laughs> good time, be good time. Oh, It would man. be brilliant. It would be brilliant. Um, that being said, like, yeah, D- did you have a favorite uh, favorite scene or a favorite quote? Or, like I said, this movie is like infinitely quotable, but was there one that like stood out to you in particular?
1: I mean, when it comes to quotes, I'm going to give you a top three. Um, Number three, uh, when the FBI is, like, calling in after all of their men have clearly been shot, uh, and been like, what's the status? And Nick Cage just gets on the mic and says, the status is they're fucking dead. Uh, Brilliant. Ten out of ten. No notes. Uh, Number two, the girlfriend, uh, when she hears about this mission, she's, she's like, he can't swim very well. He can't even snorkel. It's brilliant. Ten out of ten. No notes. Um she really should have had more to do in the film. I really thought that like when she ran away from that first FBI guy that she was gonna be more of a problem um for the FBI to kind of manage. I, I get why like there was too much other stuff going on, but uh man, I uh I I, I would have enjoyed seeing more of, of her. Um but then of course we have and I think this has to be number one. I have no idea how someone could not have this at number one. Um, when Sean Connery says, quote, losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. To which Nick Cage responds, Carla was the prom queen. Which, one, brilliant sequence. Absolutely incredible. Um, two, crazy thing to brag about when you are both like clearly and you're like like you are adult men why do you care about who the prom queen was or what whether you slept with them or not like congrats to nick cage for having the perfect comeback in that moment but just kind of wild that that's the oh man it's so good um 1996 1996
0: that's all I, i have to say about that one
1: I I really feel like as an adult human male, there shouldn't be an era in which the prom queen being the person you slept with is something to brag about. But I digress. Um, the most, but the best scene I will say is when we play Donkey Kong Country for like five to ten minutes. Um, we're just full on mind carding it up, uh, and it's an absolute banger from start to finish. Um, So many great moments there. Uh, I have no idea how Sean Connery gets from one end of the mine to the other end of the mine to have his surprise attack to save Nick Cage towards the end. Um, But, uh, you know, lighting uh, Dr. Cox on fire, obviously great. Um, But my favorite, I think, is when the Marines throw the grenade and Nick Cage has enough time to pick up the grenade and throw it back at them. Like, have y'all ever thrown a grenade once, what are you doing? You gotta have to, you have to have your timing better than this. If you're meant to be the goddamn Marines, but you know, it's more fun for Nick Cage to go, uh you and throw it back. Um, and then uh, just anytime you get like uh mine shenanigans, like why not have a minecart chase? It's, it's so beautifully silly. Um, and the film's at its best when it embraces that. Right. I, I think that, um, The film can sometimes slow itself down when it takes itself too seriously. Um, And those are the moments where the flaws come into play, right? Like, you have to, you know, when you see them going back and forth and doing everything they can to not pay the families the money that uh, General Hummel is asking for them, like like that's time in which we're not seeing Sean Connery and Nick Cage do Sean Connery and Nick Cage things and time in which it all feels incredibly pointless and easily fixable and the film should should not have given us as much time to think about those things but the the bits that work are are so fun um and that's the only part that people are going to remember when they're thinking back on this film years after they've watched it right so they they nailed the parts that matter it's just very funny that, like, you, you have this treatise on, like, the way that the military-industrial uh, complex treats its soldiers in the same film as the fucking minecart fight. It's great.
0: Yeah, I... It, the The fuck the prom queen thing is... Probably the, the quote that the second it happened, I was like, oh yeah, that's from this movie. Like I, I remember that quote. There's, there's a ton. You've brought up a bunch of them. The rocket man moment, um, the, the zoo, how in Zeus's butthill did you get out of this cell? Um, I, I drive a Volvo. So if you could cut me a little fucking slack, you know, there, <laughs> there are a ton of great moments. And, and some of the best lines are like the simplest ones, right? It's, Sean Connery going underneath the like uh, the the foundry to get behind the door that like is locked but there's no way to access it from the side they're on and he opens the door and he's like welcome to the rock right like just little Mm -hmm. shit like that where you're like oh my god like the way he is the way he is like saying that line. Just, just fucking kills you, right? Because, like, of course he's going to say that. He's probably been waiting 30 years to fucking say that. Like, the the incredulous nature that he has when he's, like, The Rock is a tourist attraction. Just he's, like, what the fuck? Or, um, and again, like, the bouncing off between the two of them when they're in the interrogation room and Mason is, like, telling, you know, Sean Connery's telling Nick Cage what to say and he's, like, coffee. And it's cage is like oh no i'm good thanks like just (laughs) fucking brilliant but then yeah there is this this theming underneath it that is the u.s government could fix this at any second right but they're hiding behind this bureaucracy oh well we got to get the president to sign off on it oh you know he's hard on terrorism oh like dude just just ask the dude Ask Hummel for the soldiers' names. That's it. We we could find it. We could find the list. We will fucking pay them, call their families, verify it, and then go, right? All of yeah. it. And this just this criticism, not only of that bureaucracy, but the fact that th- the reality is we treat our veterans like, sh- like shit. And this is 96, right? This is before 9 11. This is before the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, right? We still have fucking John Stewart going to Capitol Hill with New York City fire uh, fire people. From from September 11th, like, begging Congress to give them more money for their health benefits because they're dying of black lung after working on the World Trade Center site. And, like, that's not them dying overseas in a black mission, right? That's them fucking cleaning up after a terrorist attack, the first one since ni- the 1942, right? Like, right. that's how we treat Or supposed heroes, which is when we make the joke at the beginning, oh, well, Nick Cage being a chemical engineer, oh, Sean Connery, you know, like all these jokes is like, oh, this is the thing you really have to suspend your disbelief. It's the easiest thing to believe that we would abandon our, our, our veterans, right? And especially ones that are doing things that they're really not supposed to be doing right and again it's it's a product of the times right 20 years later we now go like hey henry kissinger was ordering bombings in cambodia off of a fucking dinner menu like we did some fucked up shit and like it's not surprising when he does his thing of like, well, we were we were sending men into South China and had two hundred enemy kills. Like, I bet the reality is is like, yeah, we probably have a lot more than two hundred fucking enemy kills in South China during the nineteen seventies and eighties. Like, I wouldn't be surprised by that, right? Mm-hmm. The 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 one thing that like really triggers this and you are getting the, the audio of right at the beginning of this film, what he alludes to is, hey, you know all the precision bombing strikes we did in Iraq during Operation Desert Storm? Uh, it's because we were lasering those targets. Well, Chase, I don't know about you, but I think I remember one of the things about Operation Desert Storm was that we were defending Kuwait and that we never sent uh, 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 personnel into Iraq. I feel like I feel like what? I remember that from history, so like and that happened like three years prior to this movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is that anyone paying attention knows we haven't treated our military personnel well in a long time, and we haven't been honest about the way in which we engage with our military in a very long time, and I'm sure there aren't multiple examples going on right now that you can point to in very similar ways. Uh, definitely don't do some research into the ongoing military conflicts that the U.S. is currently involved in um, to see how uh, that may or may not have ever changed at any point uh, since World War II. That was the last time that we had a war on the record, and it was the last time that we had any respect for our veterans, and even then it was mostly because there sure were a lot of them uh, and it was against the Nazis, so we got to win that one and feel real proud of ourselves. Um, but I, I did as we were doing this. I did find one more line. I, I feel the need to bring up, which is uh, one of the bad guys is beating the hell out of Sean Connery, and uh, he goes, "You know, my old man was Irish," and I'm like, <laughs> "You
0: British, you British, you English prick!" Yeah, <laughs> like he's On fucking a-
1: Scottish. I, I, I wrote that down as both deeply unnecessary and deeply necessary. Like, ten out of ten. <laughs> because he's to that a Irish.
0: stupid guy. American. He's got a dumb accent. He's like, oh, you're fucking British. Like, mm-hmm. goddammit. Well,
1: uh, <laughs> the, the Scots and the Irish have had their fun as well. Let's, oh, let's yeah. uh,
0: be careful. But
1: yeah. Uh, fair, you're not, fair. you're not wrong. For the American, I think that's a lot more likely. I just, yeah. I just want to be on the record.
0: Yeah. Um, um, oh my goodness. That- that being said, I, I do have two more questions for you. Rather important questions. Sure. Uh, the first question, is this the unofficial prequel to National Treasure?
1: I I mean, it, it could be. Um, I feel like there are a lot of films in this era that could all be seen as the precursor to National Treasure. I, you know, I haven't seen as many of these 90s action films as you have, so like you know, I would I would throw out Con Air, but I haven't seen Con Air, so I want to be careful about that. Um, I will say Face Off. You could very easily make the argument there as well, um, but it certainly is part of it, right? Like I think National Treasure is the um, natural evolution of this genre because it takes away some of the like pure political intrigue of it all. Uh, to you know, post nine eleven, you know, people don't want to necessarily be thinking about these things as we're still rallying around some hardcore patriotism stuff and let's take that and then focus on this thing that's you know peak usa that we're super proud of and um you know make it more uh you know lower the barrier to entry with a film that's uh more easily seen by the masses rather than the r-rated action film that this one is and uh so it, it, it's definitely a, a very natural change in the post 9-11 landscape uh, that those films had to become. Um, but I, 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 which one you pick is the precursor. I think you can make about 12 different choices and they'd all be reasonable.
0: I think that's that's relatively fair uh, to say. I I say it kind of jokingly because it is this like oh he's this like scientist and the ending of the film is him asking his girlfriend hey you want to know who shot JFK and that like leads into the conspiracy nature of National Which? Treasure. I'm f-
1: the record why why does he or his uh, wife care about who shot JFK right like it's such a like I understand that for Sean Connery's character it is a big deal to make this information available but like why does Nick Cage's character care what is his investment he's not like gonna do anything with his knowledge he's just meant to I don't know know these things and sit on it like he's never gonna get drunk at a bar and I don't know. It, it's it's very like somehow both the natural conclusion to the film as we've seen it and also something that is fucking wild to envision uh, because it feels like the end of a com- the arc of a completely different character than what we have seen from Nick Cage's character in this film. Um,
0: well, Chase, you know, as, as Mason said earlier in the film, you know. He's an educated man. And what educated man wouldn't want to know who killed JFK? Um, I, am, I am sure I asked this question uh, for Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, but because we have watched another Nicolas Cage film, I, I feel like I have to ask, uh, what is your favorite or a, as a final question, what do you think is the best Nicolas Cage film? Oh man, the
1: best Nicolas Cage film is very tough. Um, I mean, like, best is is always relative, right? Like, I'd love to give Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse some love because he's the voice of Spider-Man noir, but that doesn't feel like a Nicolas Cage film by any means. Um, I think it's face-off. I I think if I have to be honest with myself, that's the one that I've spent the most uh, time and attention with and uh, is another endlessly uh, quotable endlessly fascinating take from start to finish. Um, I'll give a minor shout out to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Also not a Nicolas Cage film, but I love that that's the first thing he was ever in. Um, Please don't tell me if it's aged poorly. Most 1980s comedies have, and I haven't gone back. And honestly, every time I have gone back to a 1980s comedy, it's made me real sad. So I'm just going to keep the vision in my head from when I was like 10 years old and did not know any better. Thank you very much. But um, those are the ones that stand
0: out to me, I think. Uh, it, it is face-off. The The correct answer is face-off. Uh, and again, much like this film, it's not just a Nicolas Cage film. It's also a John Travolta film and the way that the two of them are able to bounce off of each other, um, you know, really elevates that film. Uh, I, I do want to shout out Lord of War though. Lord of War is, is an absolutely fantastic film um, and especially is a little bit more of a, a serious side of Nick Cage um, still allowing him to be kind of humorous and making jokes at the expense of, you know, the, the FBI or CIA, I forget exactly, uh, ATF agent that he's, you know, against, but you know, allows him to be a little bit more serious. It's a really good film. Uh, Chase, with that being said, I did already say that this film was a 10 out of 10. Uh, what are your final thoughts and your final score for 1996 's the rock.
1: See, this is one of those things where, like, especially 1990s action films, it feels like giving a score to this is just a little silly, right? Um, Because what metric are we grading it on? Are we grading it uh, in terms of is it high art? Of course not. That would be foolish. Um, Are we grading it purely in the context of another 1990s action films? Like, that's probably a little better. But to be honest, I don't have as many of those 90s action films that I can point to. So my take within that context would be of limited value to anybody. Um, So I think the only thing I can judge it by is, was it a good time that I would recommend somebody else go through? Um, And to that end, I'm willing to give it an 8 out of 10. I had a fun time with this, and 4 out of 5 stars is to me a film that is uh, worth your time on. And I'm happy to give it that. Is it a perfect film? No. Are there some bits in there that did not age particularly well? Absolutely. Um, Are there things in there that don't make a lot of sense and it wouldn't take a lot of work to make it make sense, but this is the world we live in and so we just kind of move on to get to the fun stuff? Absolutely. But the fun stuff is really fun, The reason we are here is to watch Sean Connery do Sean Connery things and Nick Cage do Nick Cage things. Um, And the vehicle that we have does more than enough to accomplish that task. And so to that end, I am happy to give it an 8 out of 10 and say that if you're in the mood for a schlocky 1990s action film, uh, this is a good one. You'll have a
0: good time. You you will absolutely have a a splendiferous fantastic time with this film, and this is this is a little bit of a run for Nick Cage. He's he's got the three films in a row: The Rock, Con Air, and Face Off. Like three in a row here in '96 and '97. It's a nice little nice little run of his career. It might be his career peak. Those three films in a row, but. When we have the Nicolas Cage podcast episode, we can discuss his entire filmography. Uh, but with that being said, Chase, uh, it is your turn to pick the film. Uh, what what film are we going to watch in two weeks?
1: I am so excited because we're going to watch uh, Sorry to Bother You, which is a film that I put in like my pantheon of if you want to better understand me as a human being and the philosophy I bring to the world and how I choose to engage with it. Um, it's at this point, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Sorry to bother you and the princess bride. Uh, and you've seen two of those three films. So now you get to see the third one and you get to see why boots Riley is one of the most fascinating minds uh that I have seen uh put to film uh and I cannot wait for your response because I think you're going to love this one so um fingers crossed that it goes well folks at home but uh but yeah can't wait
0: I I do love Lakeith Stanfield and I have not seen this film so I am very excited to watch it. Uh, please, no spoilers. Do not direct any spoilers in my direction. Uh, but if you do want to talk to us about The Rock, Chase, where can the good folks at home find you on the internet?
1: You can find me, Chase Wasenaar on Blue Sky uh, or on Twitter, I suppose. I'm trying to do better about spending less time on there because it, frankly, is not worth the time that I spend on it. But uh I love to hear from y'all. So by all means reach out to us there and of course follow Rough Drafts Pod on Twitter and Rough Drafts Podcast I believe on Blue Sky uh so that you get all the info on both uh all of our our upcoming episodes because whenever we're not doing this on Mondays we're doing steam cleaners which is a very fun video game podcast where we talk about different games every 2 weeks. Um and we also do uh, every other Thursday our Journey of Wrestling League uh, that we've been doing, the two of us and friends of the podcast, Xander and Eduardo. So if you're someone who likes wrestling and thinks that you would have a good time seeing what Walter and I believe makes for good wrestling storytelling, come by twitch.tv slash Redshirt King. Uh, it will be uh, this Thursday when you're listening to this. Um, so come check it out. Uh it's gonna be a fun time.
0: It is, it is always a fun time. Uh, I know it's way more fun for Chase because he is winning and has been pretty consistently winning. Uh but it's still fun. We've <laughs> I, I've got some fun storyline stuff coming up. Uh and as always, you guys can find me at C underscore L O L on Twitter and at CADs.bSky.social. Uh but come back in two weeks. And we will be talking about Sorry to Bother You. Until next time, goodbye, Internet.